Security Council on Wednesday is holding a special meeting devoted to the issue, the problem of foreign terrorist fighters flocking from around the world to combat zones, specifically in Iraq and Syria. This meeting at the United Nations was called at the behest of the United States, and as chance may have it, the United States currently holds the rotating month-long presidency of the Security Council, so for the second time in the history of the institution, a sitting American president will preside over a Security Council meeting. Now, this, of course, demonstrates the seriousness to which I think Barack Obama holds the ISIS issue, but it also demonstrates the value that the United States believes the United Nations has in helping to combat international terrorism. Here with me to discuss this Security Council meeting and the role of the United Nations in combating international terrorism is Noreen Chowdhury Fink of the Global Center on Cooperative Security. We discuss the history of the UN's involvement in this issue, which begins in the weeks after September 11th, and then we talk about how this new resolution and this meeting at the Security Council can reinvigorate the UN's role in fighting international terrorism. Here it is, my conversation with Noreen Chowdhury Fink of the Global Center on Cooperative Security. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. I, it appears that it's a very important part of the development of any strategy in that region that it not be America out there alone fighting this battle. Uh, the president has stressed many times that this will be, you know, a cooperative effort, that other countries will be on board. And I think that getting a U.N. resolution helps really uh, put some meat on that bone by by showing that there is international support. You know, he differentiates himself from the perceptions that, you know, the U.S. goes to war in the Middle East without, a, without any kind of engagement with the U.N., without international partners on board. And, you know, the, the proposed resolution really does stress sort of bilateral and multilateral cooperation. So, you know, I don't think it's by any means the, the main or the, the sort of only focus of the strategy to deal with ISIS, but um, I think it's, very import- it's a very important way to show that there is a real effort to engage international partners. Um, and not only place obligations on them, but place support, uh, you know, offer support like capacity building assistance or engagement. Um, So keeping in mind that sometimes early versions of draft resolutions change uh, when it comes to vote, I mean, based on what you've seen so far of this resolution, what does it uh, attempt to do? What does it say? What are its, you know, what are are your big takeaways from it? Sure. What it, what it's really trying to do is take a lot of what was already agreed, for example, in Resolution 13, uh, 1373, 
and really sort of apply that in a more granular way to this notion of foreign terrorist fighters. And, and sorry, um, for they, uh, people who don't have an encyclopedic knowledge of <laughs> Security Council resolutions, what does 1373 say? Right. So 1373 was enacted under Chapter 7 um, and imposed a sweeping set of obligations on all member states to criminalize sort of the support, safe haven, transit, participation in, you know, terrorist groups from, you know, uh, giving them safe haven or resources. So there were a host of legislative and financial penalties that states were obligated to impose on anyone believed to be participating in or, or supporting a terrorist group. And, and uh, um, this was passed in the weeks following the September 11th That's right. Attack. It's, it was adopted, I, if I remember correctly, about 10 days after 9-11, mm-hmm. somewhere in that period. And and this um, resolution is sort of, I mean, from a UN perspective, it's sort of a watershed moment in how the UN deals with fighting terrorism, right? I mean, before this, there was no real central coordinated strategy. Resolution 1373 created legally binding mechanisms by which states were obliged to fight terrorism, right? And this was something brand new and happened in the wake of right. September 11th. That's right. And in many ways, what's very interesting is it really positioned, placed the UN in a position uh, to address what was this new and emerging emerging threat of transnational terrorism. You know, prior to that, terrorism had really been dealt with as sort of a national problem, an internal problem, or bilateral in many ways. And I think um, there was sort of no clarity on what kind of systemic response there could be to a group that spans so many political borders that have so many sort of nodes of operation, you know, whether it's their, um, whether it's the movement of material, finances, or, or fighters, it was very clear that this new phenomenon would require much more of a multilateral, um, you know, international effort. So in that way, 1373 is definitely, you know, a watershed. And of course, in the sweeping sort of scale of obligations that it imposed on member states, um, and in some ways, you know, it's it's a very broad brush resolution, um, which allows it does allow member states to implement it as they see, you know, appropriate to their context. And I think part of the reason this new resolution is being proposed is is to try and add that granularity, focusing on foreign terrorist fighters. And you know, in many ways, some of it pulls, uh, sort of, sorry, reflects some of the original. All language and obligations in 1373. You know, it's already a criminal act to participate in terrorism or to give them, you know, give terrorist groups safe haven or, or to allow the financing of terrorism. But this resolution aims really to focus on foreign terrorist fighters. And can you describe not- uh, briefly sort of what is the problem of foreign terrorist fighters? I mean, is it is it simply that the conflict in Syria is attracting... Um, you know, people from Europe and Western countries and really all around the world to, to go there to fight uh, against whatever targets, you know, are, are, I guess, most convenient? Sure. I think what's been of real concern is the volume and the speed um, at which the volume of foreign fighters have gone to Iraq and Syria. Are there um, any, you know, like, estimates about the number of foreign fighters yes. that may be there? The estimates range from twelve to 15,000. Um, and you're looking at a total number, according to the, to the new numbers released by the CIA, of 20 to 31,000 total fighters, you know, for ISIS, for example, um, 
So the estimates of twelve to 15,000 might involve, uh, include some who've gone to other groups like the El Nusra Front. But in general, the, the number is twelve to 15,000 foreign terrorist fighters. If you compare that to 25, say, to 30,000 members of ISIS. And, and certainly estimates suggest that more foreign fighters have gone to Iraq and Syria, you know, particularly Syria in these last three years, than went through the entire period of the Afghan jihad, including the Taliban rule. Well, I mean, that's uh, a remarkable thing to say, because that, you know, of course, gave rise to like a whole generation of, of jihadis eventually, you know, turning into, you know, some of which whom gravitated to Al-Qaeda and was like right. the, the, the genesis of Al-Qaeda. So are you perhaps suggesting that what we're seeing now might, you know, be the genesis, you know, uh, a decade down the road of something, you know, new and horrible, uh, just as well, that's, that's exactly, that's exactly what people are concerned about. And that's exactly what international governments, um, you know, Europe, the U S and others are concerned about that their citizens can go uh, to this conflict, be sort of combat battle-hardened combat experience, and now they can use all the technology and the information on the web to perpetrate acts that are, you know, maybe 20 years ago you really needed to go to a terrorist training camp and you needed to meet someone with very specialized knowledge um, to have access to this kind of information. So between the Internet, between globalization and the movement of people and ideas and materials, and then the idea that this many people can have access to combat experience and then bring that home um, is concerning to many governments. Um, and I think beyond that, certainly what a lot of experts have suggested is precisely the kind of bonds you're talking about, the kind of interpersonal connections and experiences that can bind people, um, you know, through their experiences in a conflict zone, the concern is that those kind of connections will continue to generate problems. Um, I mean, in some ways, we can see, you know, there are a number of global crises that are of concern today, and, you know, one could raise the question of, well, why, you know, why this particular crisis, why has it captured the imagination um, and the alarm of so many governments? It's precisely because I think the concern is, all it takes is a few people to be able to come back with that kind of knowledge and experience. Um, ISIS has shown itself to be really smart in terms of recruiting people and having a very nuanced social media campaign and the effect that has on citizens in Europe and, and the U.S. And, and many other countries. That's where a lot of the concern lies. Uh, so I take it that this resolution, uh, if passed, uh, will be under Chapter 7, meaning it will be sort of uh, legally binding on all member yes. states. Um, so in what ways does the resolution oblige member states to try and stop the flow of foreign fighters? Sure. It, and yes, it is being proposed under Chapter 7, which is what I think makes it particularly interesting. Um, and just one aspect of the um, resolution that I do think is also interesting in the kind of obligations it uh, puts forward, not only the response, so it does require, for example, uh, the criminalization of you know, traveling to join a terrorist group. It's impo um, the language is suggesting countries tighten border controls um, in terms of the kinds of documents and travel, sort of travel documentation that is available. It does request, for example, that countries, like uh, airplanes departing and arriving in countries, transmit information about um, those that they believe are traveling to, to join foreign terrorist groups. So in 
in some ways, it takes the obligations from 1373 and applies them particularly to the idea of foreign terrorist fighters. What is interesting, especially where, where it deviates a little, is it has a huge component on countering violent extremism. And one thing that this resolution tries to do is balance all these responsive measures by by noting that it's also important to prevent sort of the radicalization um, of of foreign fighters in the first place and that you need to engage and this is kind of unusual that it actually says sorry it actually talks about engaging you know local communities non-government actors um, and strategies to counter violent extremism and this emphasis is very unusual and is is a new element of a counterterrorism chapter 7 resolution well it seems that that's almost sort of embracing the softer side of counterterrorism policy right which is to embrace uh, public policy that at least, you know, for, for Europe, at least, that doesn't alienate um, second generation immigrants, like that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. Oh, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say yes, and it's just very much in line with the UN's own, you know, with the UN's global counterterrorism strategy, which in the in its four pillars, pillar one really does urge member states to address the, quote, conditions conducive to the spread of terrorism, and Pillar 4 of the global strategy really stresses the importance of upholding and protecting human rights in countering terrorism. So this resolution um, is very much reflective of that comprehensive approach that includes both prevention and response and, you know, addressing, as as you say, a lot of the grievances and alienation and marginalization that comes um, often into play in radicalization. And, and when it comes to sort of implementing the resolution, implementing the measures to stop foreign fighters. Are we really, you know, basically talking about one country more than other, Turkey being central to whether or not this succeeds, given its sort of, you know, very long border with Syria and, and obviously very porous border of Syria? I mean, my understanding is the way in which most would-be ISIS members make it into uh, uh, Syria is via Turkey, right? I, I mean, you could say that. Certainly, the the geography, as you clearly indicated, suggests that, and and I imagine Turkey will be foremost in the minds of many people when they read that that kind of language. But I think you know it's also important that it stresses countries that believe their citizens are departing for Syria. You know whether it's the case of this young girl in Colorado here, or um, you know these two girls that went from Austria, and certainly a number of fighters from the UK. So I think, it, you know, while, while, again, Turkey can come to mind uh, when you think about these measures, it, it does place a lot of emphasis also on countries that believe their own citizens may be going to combat zones and imposes or, or recommends some kind of, uh, you know, measures to stop them departing in the first place. Um, so, you know, like most uh, Security Council resolutions, um, you know, it, it's, difficult to enforce, right? That um, there are, you know, it, while it's legally binding on all member states, if passed under Chapter 7, sometimes actually implementing the resolution, you know, requires the cooperation of member states, and some member states are less cooperative than others. Um, what will you see as, you know, measures of success of, into, as to whether or not this resolution is, is implemented on the ground? Oh, that's like the million-dollar question. Um I think measures. That's why. That's why I do this. (laughs) People will look to. I think people will look to, for example, travel regulations 
standards of travel documents, you know, the, um, whether the, the kind of information, um, the difficulty, you know, whether travel documents become harder to forge, the training of border officials. So, you know, some, these are some tangible measures that you can think about, um, you know, when thinking about managing borders, whether uh, not only the travel documentation, but in terms of whether airlines implement protocols where, where they alert, you know, the relevant government entities um, when people are traveling. So I think some of those very tangible travel protocols um, could be one way. Um, the 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 resolution and a lot of the discussion on this has also really stressed bilateral cooperation and information exchange. And I think in some ways it will be difficult to know, of course, on a bilateral basis, the level um, of information that's being shared and acted on. But, you know, in many ways, like efforts to assess the success and implementation of 1373 are difficult, but the Counterterrorism Executive Directorate, through its implementation surveys and through its assessments, you know, examines the the legal and other dimensions of efforts that countries have made to implement 1373 and then give some kind of assessment. So similarly, there, there are some ways of doing it, and I think when the, you know, when there are certain in obligations that the resolution imposes on countries, people will look and see how the countries have responded to that. You know, are they are they improving, uh, like I said, border management? It seems like the easiest one, you know, when you think of tangible outcomes. But it, is there more funding for countering violent extremism? Is there more support for communities that are concerned about radicalization? Um, is there more of an awareness-raising campaign about the dangers of traveling abroad uh, for, to fight with terrorist groups? Are there new laws on the books that make it easier to prosecute or bring to justice um, those who countries think are fighting abroad? And I think there is also a sense that it should not just be about prosecution and bringing to justice, but that there should be some mode of rehabilitation or reintegration for those who've gone abroad and want to come back. You know, a number of people have said that what's very difficult if countries only rely on prosecution and, and detention, um, that foreign fighters who have changed their minds or they've gone abroad and said, hey, this is really not for me and I have no intention of, you know, fighting being caught up in some intergroup struggle. I really thought I was coming to help the people of Syria. I want to go home that there should be something waiting for them when they go home, like a rehabilitation and reintegration program. So the extent to which countries are willing to um, invest in some of those or establish or strengthen some of those kinds of programs could be ways of seeing whether the resolution has been effective. Well, thank you to Noreen for putting this in context. Thank you all for listening. Subscribe to Global Dispatches on iTunes. Check out all of our archive content. Uh, some of which is timeless, some of which, like this conversation, is a little more timely. Uh, anyway, we'll see you next time, and uh, wow, what a UN week this has been. Bye.